the momentum to address climate change has never been greater in the world. Welcome to Radio Davos, where this week we're talking climate, COP26 and energy. That was the head of the International Energy Agency with the good news about climate change. But here's the bad news. The second trend is, however, again in 2021, this year, we are seeing a huge increase in global emissions, the second largest increase in the history ever. The International Energy Agency has just released its latest report of global energy use and found that coal, a fossil fuel that we have to stop burning, is enjoying a surge. The head of the agency talks exclusively to Radio Davos days ahead of the Glasgow Climate Summit. I should say, what is my main hope from the COP? Too many hopes, too many fears. And we hear from this energy innovator who says that by combining renewable energies with data and machine learning, we can disrupt the way we produce and consume electricity for the good of the planet. The world of renewables needs us to completely invert the way energy works, and it really needs to be far more like Uber. Radio Davos is the podcast from the World Economic Forum that looks at the biggest challenges and how we might solve them. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts, leave us a rating and a review, and join us on the World Economic Forum Podcast Club on Facebook. I'm Robin Pomeroy, and with a look at energy, COP26, and climate change, we need to make sure we're taking the actions needed to make sure that climate change is not a reality, but it's a nightmare from our past. This is Radio Davos. Energy, the fuel we use for heating, cooling, manufacturing, transport and so on, accounts for a third of our greenhouse gas emissions. If we want to tackle climate change, we have to tackle energy. In this episode, we'll be hearing from the head of a British electricity company who says technology will play a massive role in getting us to switch from fossil fuels to renewables. If you look at pretty much any country, they'll have control rooms to their grid that look very much like a mini cab office. You know, you literally have sort of blokes in front of computers with a mouse turning power stations on and off. And it really needs to be far more like Uber, where you just have vast amounts of real-time data and machine learning, optimising the system in ways that humans can't. That interview later, but first, the International Energy Agency recently issued its World Energy Outlook 2021. This is the report that everyone looks to, to see how much energy we're using, what type, and what is likely to happen in the coming decades. In what struck me as a bit of a euphemism, the title of the IEA's press release said, the World Energy Outlook 2021 shows a new energy economy is emerging, but not yet quickly enough to reach net zero by 2050. Put another way, while renewable energies, particularly wind and solar, are growing rapidly, so is the use of the dirtiest fuel of them all, coal. The economic rebound from the pandemic has meant a jump in the use of coal that's caused the second largest annual increase in greenhouse gas emissions in history. I spoke to the IEA's executive director, Fatih Birol, and put it to him that this showed that any hope that humanity would build back better out of Covid had vanished. Our numbers show that this year, 2021, is a very peculiar year because we see two opposing trends. On one hand, we see that the momentum to address climate change has never been greater in the world. Many governments around the world, uh, the US, Canada, all EU countries, UK, Japan, China, they came up with strong commitments to reduce their emissions. So did many companies around the world. And when you look at the public, there's a great, great support, uh, governments, industry, to address this issue. 
This is one trend. The second trend is, however, again in 2021, this year, we are seeing a huge increase in global emissions, the second largest increase in the history ever. So there, uh, there is a bit of a, if I may say so, there is a, a gap between the rhetoric and what is happening in the uh, real life. Uh, this is a worrying uh, trend. And as such, the longer we bend the emissions trend uh, downwards, uh, the less chances we will have to address our climate challenges and bring the temperature trajectory to a level that can provide us a livable planet. So what is it that needs to happen beyond the pledges in this decade that people say is a crucial decade? What needs to happen very, very quickly? Now, the pledges today, when we look at it, as we did in our World Energy Outlook, we put all of them together. If the governments, if there's a big if there, if they fulfill their pledges completely, we are still going to see a temperature increase of 2.1 degrees Celsius, significantly higher than 1.5 degrees, what the scientists tell us it is the maximum that we can have. And the difference of 0.6 degrees uh, temperature increase is not something that you just take your jacket off and adjust this, uh, uh, the new environment, but it will have huge implications for the extreme, ev uh, extreme weather events, much more frequent extreme weather events, much more intense extreme weather events, and uh, so on. What needs to happen is, first of all, more countries need to make commitments, and the existing pledges need to be much more ambitious than they are uh, today. And as such, I very much hope we have the Glasgow meeting. That will be a meeting where we hear from several governments around the world, uh, especially those in developing Asia and elsewhere, come up uh, with stronger pledges uh, what they have. And the ones who have not made commitments, they make some commitments and implement them. Let me quote a bit of the report. This is a quote from you. Today's climate pledges would result in only 20% of the emissions reductions by 2030 that are necessary to put the world on a path towards net zero by 2050. I mean, 20%. And these are only pledges. It's still an absolute mountain to climb, isn't it? You are completely right. We are far, far beyond what we should be doing now. But the issue is, you rightly mentioned, that this next 10 years is critical. And we have as a world, we have all the technologies with us uh, today in order to uh, make much more ambitious uh, energy policies. What are those? Much more renewables, solar, onshore wind, offshore wind, hydropower, uh, energy efficiency, using energy more efficiently, and electric cars. These are already with us. We just need to see a very strong expansion of the existing technologies in the uh, next 10 years. And if we are not able to do that, the job after that will be much more difficult, if at all possible. So what is standing in the way of that progress? Is it just that this is the way the market is built? This is the way the market works? And it's so hard to change a big global market like the energy market? In my view, if we leave everything to the markets and market developments, we will not have the slightest chances to reach our targets. So therefore, governments are in the driving seat here. What 
could accelerate progress, what could accelerate the transition, maybe two things in general terms. One, government regulations. It can be regulations in terms of putting efficiency standards of television screens to the air conditioners, or it can be incentives in order to provide a bit of an encouragement for the consumers to buy the better products, such as electric cars versus traditional cars. This is one type of government policy is needed. The second one is under uh, an area that we should never forget. The big part of the emissions growth come from the emerging world when we look at the next 10 years. And the amount of clean energy investments going to these countries are rather bleak, very little. About 20% of all clean energy investments go to emerging markets. So therefore, the rich countries around the world, in my view, should provide some type of financial assistance support to emerging countries to give a kickoff incentive, a kickoff capital, in order to play a catalyst role for the clean energy investments. In the absence of that, what countries do in, for example, in Europe has less of an impact on the global trends. A one ton of CO2 going to atmosphere from Mumbai or from Detroit or Geneva or from Johannesburg, it has the same effect on everybody. Emissions don't have a passport. So it is from that point of view, it is very important in my view that the rich countries provide financial support to emerging countries. And it is one of my main expectations from the Glasgow meeting that the, there is a financial architecture is built and provide the support for emerging countries. So together with the government intervention, regulations, incentives, I would hope to see that the emerging market financing plays a role. These two areas are the key areas in order to accelerate the clean energy transition at a global level. Let's talk about electrification. The World Economic Forum's Global Future Council on Clean Electrification is putting out a report called Empowering Demand Getting to Net Zero, which talks about stimulating demand for electrification. Is electrification the key to society combating climate change? Do you think in both the developed world and in emerging economies, using more electricity that's generated cleanly, is that really the main answer when it comes to energy? It is one of the main answers because the electricity sector alone today is responsible uh, by far uh, the largest amount of emissions. About 40% of the global emissions come alone from the electricity uh, generation. Now, when it comes to advanced economies, for example, G7 countries, they are about to announce zero emission electricity generation by 2030s. This is good. This is very important. But we need to look at the rest of the world as well. Again, emissions don't have a passport. Let me give you one example. China, India, and Indonesia, three big countries, all of them have electricity generation, 60-70% of their total electricity generation. They make uh, about uh, more than 40% of the global population. As long as we cannot decarbonize, clean up their electricity uh, generation, it will be very difficult to uh, see a, a big change in the global electricity system. So therefore, while we uh, should be happy and congratulate the uh, developed countries, including those uh, G7 uh, leadership, 
to have a, a net zero generation of electricity by 2030 or around, it is very important to keep an eye what will happen in the uh, developing countries where the bulk of the uh, electricity generation comes from coal today. And those countries, like the ones you mentioned, who get 60 or 70% of their electricity from coal are often big manufacturing bases producing goods that are then traded around the world. But at the moment, the price of their carbon emissions isn't included in the price of the goods. How important is it to put a price on carbon emissions and how would you see that actually happening in reality? We see that putting a price on carbon in Europe works well. There are difficulties here and there, but the main trend is it seems that it is uh, working. China made some steps in that direction. And in theory, it is the best way to address the problem. Putting a, a price on uh, carbon, economic theory tells us that this would be the best and easiest solution. However, when it comes to the real life, I have uh, difficulties to believe that we can implement the carbon pricing schemes in many parts of the emerging world. And it may not be possible in the real world context. So therefore, I wouldn't put all the bets on the carbon pricing. There are many other areas. In addition to that, we can much more easily use to reduce emissions in the developing world. And this ranges from using renewables which, uh, as you mentioned, uh, becoming uh, the cheapest source of electricity generation in many parts of the world to some other technologies, such as in some countries, nuclear power, or improving the energy efficiency of electricity consuming equipments uh, around the world. Carbon pricing, yes, very good idea, but in some cases, especially the emerging countries, difficult to implement today, Therefore, we need to look at other options ranging from government regulation to the incentivizing renewables, hydropower and other low carbon technologies. So COP26, what are your hopes and fears and what do you think is actually going to come out of the climate summit? Too many hopes, too many fears. If I have to pick up one, I would very much like to see from uh, the COP uh, meeting that the leaders of nations come together in Glasgow, and in a united way, give a message uh, to the world, saying that the world, investors, please see, we are determined here to build a clean energy future. Therefore, if you invest in the dirty energy, you are risking to lose money. We are sending the world an unmistakable signal. If you invest in the clean energy options, you can make handsome profits. Please take our unmistakable signal as the sign of our determination to build a clean energy future. This is my hope from COP26 in Glasgow this year. Fatih Birol, head of the International Energy Agency. The report is called The World Energy Outlook 2021. On these episodes, as well as talking to people in positions of power and influence, we're hearing from normal people around the world about their hopes and fears for COP26 and for climate change beyond that. Inez Yabar lives in Peru, where she campaigns against plastic waste in the ocean. Hi, my name is Inez Yabar and I am a sustainability activist from Peru. Um, my solution to climate change is actually to listen to what 
everyone is already saying and to what we already know is true. We need to move away from fossil fuels and move into renewable energies. We need to make sure that we're bringing people along the process and not leaving anyone behind in terms of the solutions we're giving to countries who need the most help and who are most affected by climate change. We need to make sure that the decisions we're making are actually followed through with our actions. So there is no one solution to climate change. The solutions are already there and we need to listen and make sure that we're taking the actions that are needed to make sure that climate change is not a reality, but it's a nightmare from our past. Inez Yabar, speaking from Peru. You're listening to Radio Davos, a COP26 special, and we're talking about energy. The UK energy market was deregulated as part of Margaret Thatcher's drive to inject entrepreneurship into formerly state-dominated sectors. Now, that market approach has its sceptics, and it's been severely tested recently as a surge in wholesale natural gas prices has forced many small companies in the energy sector out of business completely. One relatively new entrant to the electricity market, still going strong in the market tumult, is a company called Octopus Energy. Its founder and chief executive spoke to me and said it's only by harnessing data in a way that Silicon Valley disruptor companies do that societies can make a rapid and cost-effective switch to renewables. I started by asking Greg Jackson what was so different about the brave new world of clean energy. The biggest issue is that the world of renewables needs us to completely invert the way energy works from having a small number of large, easily controlled fossil fuel plants on a grid to having thousands or millions of generation points that are dependent on sunshine and wind and, and other renewable factors. And at the same time, we're moving from a world where you know the energy you supply to someone's home was kind of uh, predictable but unshiftable to a world where you know we've got electric vehicles and increasingly decarbonized heating systems uh, that really mean you have these very big shiftable loads of consumption. Now, if we use technology, we can use all of this variability to our advantage. Remember, it's like Uber, sort of matching supply and demand in real time. If, on the other hand, we're stuck with those outdated systems, we have to try and make the physics behave like fossil fuels. We'll have a very expensive transition. So... The way the grid runs in most developed countries does not really work that well with the new look way of generating energy through renewables. Could you tell us exactly why that is? Yeah, I think there are two things to it. And the first thing is that if you look at pretty much any country, they'll have control rooms to their grid that look very much like a mini cab office. You know, you literally have sort of blokes in front of computers with a mouse turning power stations on and off. And it really needs to be far more like Uber where you just have vast amounts of real-time data and machine learning, optimizing the system in ways that humans can't. And the reason we need to do that is that fundamentally, renewable energy is cheaper. You know, there are no input costs. Once you've built the generation, wind, solar, and so on, it is much cheaper than fossil fuels to run. And so what we need to do to capitalize on that cheap energy when it's available is use this technology to shift sort of supply and demand around in a highly fluid way. Technology is going to be great at that. So how does Octopus Energy do that? What data do you use and to do what exactly? So today we've got tens of thousands of customers who've got things like smart energy tariffs where in real time their smart meter and things like their electric vehicle charging hardware are 
talking to each other via the internet to optimize the point when we charge in the car. And, you know, we'll charge a car when it's sunny and when it's windy, when there's a lot of renewable available and, and when renewable prices are cheap. And we'll choose not to charge the car when green electrons are less abundant, when grid prices are high. And the clever systems can even take into account things like your driving patterns. So they'll make sure that you can have enough electricity whenever you want to drive. But within that, they'll be optimizing based on green energy. You can imagine as over the next decade, electric vehicles become the norm and decarbonized heating becomes the norm. This is going to be a colossal opportunity to be you know, using that green electricity when it's available. And really what you want to be doing is taking the data from every single wind turbine and solar farm, every single bit of micro weather forecasting. And then you can be optimizing at any moment in time, whether you're creating hydrogen and you're going to be putting it into fuel cells to be used in trucks or industrial processes, or whether you're charging a battery at grid level or at the end of someone's street or in someone's house. Now, all of that kind of optimization, it's normal in the world of the internet. When you're downloading a web page, there's already systems throughout the internet that have kind of taken a lot of that data, compressed it, stored it in the right place, ready for you to use it. We now need to treat energy the same way we treat data in the internet. To kind of peel back all that high-tech stuff and make it as simple as possible, at its most basic, you've got an energy grid. Sometimes when everyone arrives home from work, TV goes on, the electric oven goes on, the lights go on, the heating goes on, there's a massive peak in demand. At three o'clock in the morning, none of those things are happening, but the grid is still has a lot of energy running through it. And therefore it's cheaper if a company like yours is able to make some of those things happen in the middle of the night, because it doesn't matter when you charge your car, as long as it's parked and plugged in somewhere. That's the kind of thing you're talking about, right? It really is. It's as simple as that. And I think most of the time, our grid is massively underutilized. It's got tons of spare capacity. So a bit like we can get cheap holidays by you know, using hotel rooms that would otherwise have been empty, flying on airline seats that would otherwise have only been half occupied. So we can increasingly take advantage of the spare capacity in the grid by using it for things like electric vehicle charging where the time doesn't matter. I think the other bit, Robin, is just in a renewable world, we need to think about the fact that electricity availability is also very variable. And so you need smart tech to choose the right times to do stuff because it's not as simple anymore as it's just the middle of the night. For example, you know, in the UK, there's a big peak in solar energy around about midday during summer days. So that's a great time to grab electricity and use it for things like charging cars. In what way, though, can this help tackle the climate crisis? It's critical, actually, Robin. Uh, we've got two ways we can go renewable globally. Now, going renewable is critical, obviously, to decarbonizing society. If we can make our system efficiently use these variable and intermittent sources of electricity, renewables, then decarbonizing electricity will actually cut energy costs. If, on the other hand, we don't use it intelligently and we have to build massive battery farms next to wind farms, as an example, then going renewable is going to increase the cost of energy. And in doing so, we'll slow down decarbonization. So I think for those of us who want citizens to embrace the journey to decarbonization, making it cheaper than today's world is going to be an incredibly helpful enabler for that. 
you're saying you want this data on even weather forecasting and to the moment when there's these peaks in the solar energy on on a sunny day is that kind of open information if i want to come into competition with you and set up against you will i find it easy to find that data that kind of data i'm talking about some of it's open you know anyone can access weather data and you can pay extra to access very granular data so really what you want to be doing is creating entirely new intelligence that can be used to drive down the cost because we're moving away from the world at which the grid can just turn a coal power station on and off to meet peak time in the evening when everyone's watching a sort of tv and turning on the cows during the ad break you know we've moved away from that world and so the kind of data i'm talking about is both ambiently available it's available from your customers and you generate a lot of it yourself we employ dozens of data scientists we've got you know lots of machine learning and artificial intelligence and we employ probably 150 software developers they're all building the tech that enables us to you know make green electricity as cheap and easy to use as possible you've mentioned a couple of times uber as an example a disruptive technology that kind of has emerged and become so dominant it strikes me the energy sector in most countries is very centralized If you're coming in as a kind of a disruptor, is that going to work or are you just going to be nibbling on the edges of this great big kind of government regulated thing? I look at it a bit like the internet. Government's got us to the point where the internet was available and this incredible technology and that's an astonishing achievement. They then opened it up to uh, enterprise and that's what's transformed the world as we know it. And I think we now need to be thinking about energy systems in the same way. Particularly for example, you know, government backing is what got renewables to the point where they're now typically cheaper than fossil fuels. But to unleash the full power of that, to drive down costs and to go renewable faster than anyone imagined, we should now unleash that kind of creative energy, uh, that competitive pressure from, you know, the private sector. And that can be innovative companies, it can be existing companies, it can be startups, it can be tech. What have been the stumbling blocks? or what have been the great open doors that you've just walked through for a company like yours a disruptor to actually getting a foot on that ladder which you know in an area that is quite dominated by certain big players look i think in any disrupting sector it's a race between new companies who've got innovation and technology that might improve the way things are done and the incumbents who've got legacy and bureaucracy and kind of lumbering costs and lack of innovation and the race really is between the new starts to get uh big and for the incumbents to get efficient we saw that in airlines right so you look at airlines in for example in europe you know the flag carriers reformed consolidated and so on to become better businesses than they had been as the best of the low cost airlines grew to tremendous scale and now you've got a market which is kind of dominated by a combination of both of those kind of companies the best of the flag carriers and the best of the low cost airlines so let's talk outside of the uk now the UK liberalized the energy sector what in the 1980s or early 90s it's not been the case around the world but do you see what you're doing as having scope to expand around the world or the other companies could do similar things around the world increasingly we're able to operate globally i think countries which can deregulate their energy retail have got a greater chance of getting citizens to embrace the move to renewables because if you have an active customer focused retail sector in energy you've got companies that will be bringing you know special offers when the sun is shining 
cheap electricity when the wind's blowing to charge your car, all automated. You don't need to think about it. And now we need to be starting to challenge countries to think about opening grids up to competition the way that India has. And then how do you digitize the grid? Maybe running almost like the internet of electricity. So you're treating your grid as wires, but you're using software and algorithms to determine what's going on. When we talk to governments in countries we're entering, you know, they really embrace this approach. Who doesn't want cheaper green electricity? Who doesn't want you know, citizens to see benefit from going carbon free rather than seeing it as an extra cost on the bill? Greg Jackson, founder and chief executive officer of Octopus Energy. And you also heard on this episode Fatih Birol, head of the International Energy Agency and plastics campaigner Inez Yabar in Peru. COP26 is days away and on next week's Radio Davos we'll have a preview of what to expect. Among the voices you'll hear will be this one. My first COP was COP1, so I, uh, for better or for worse, have been to all of them. The world-weary Jennifer Morgan has been campaigning for global action against climate change for decades. The executive director of Greenpeace International tells us how public and political perceptions have shifted, particularly because climate change is no longer an abstract theory just see this immense, you know, storms that come down, wipe away homes. You, you see forests going up uh, in flames uh, around the world. You, you know, you see people in subways in China and in New York. So what was seen as this faraway problem is now here and now, and you can't ignore it. You just, you just can't ignore it anymore. That's on next week's Radio Davos. Please subscribe wherever you get your podcast to ensure you don't miss that. Please leave us a rating and a review there and join us at the World Economic Forum Podcast Club. Look for that on Facebook. This episode of Radio Davos was written and presented by me, Robin Pomeroy. Studio production was by Gareth Nolan. We'll be back with that episode previewing COP26 next week. But for now, thanks so much to you for listening and goodbye. <laughs>